Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Last week we took a look at the holiness of God and we looked at what holiness is. We defined the word holiness by three concepts. One being something that is worthy of worship, high esteem and respect by virtue of dignity or character. Second concept of, of holiness is that it is an awful thing, something that's full of awe, not in the modern sense where, it, where awful means terrible, but in the old sense where awful meant full of awe. And then the third concept was that of purity, cleanness, and innocence. So the holiness of God are, are those three concepts tied together. And we looked at several instances where men encountered God and encountered the Lord in a, in a measure of his holiness. And they, in turn, were devastated and, and really, really shocked at their own uncleanness in the light of God's holiness. And we looked particularly in the case of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah was was undoubtedly the most righteous man in, in Israel and probably one of the most righteous men in the world at that time. And yet when he saw himself in the light of God's purity, who is the ultimate standard of holiness, he was just shocked and dismayed. And he said, woe is me, for I'm unclean, and I'm a man of unclean lips. And then we see where the Lord didn't leave him in that condition, but God cleansed his mouth and had provided that he too could become holy. And then after that after that incident, then God asked for who am I going to send? And Isaiah volunteered and was commissioned by the Lord to go and give God's message. And so today we want to continue our study of holiness. And today we want to look at our response to God's holiness. How do we respond to the holiness of God? What, 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 is, what is God saying to us through his holiness? And to begin our study today, I want to look at the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus can be described as the book of holiness because the book of Leviticus uses the word holy over and over again and it is continually making references to God's command to us to be holy as he himself is holy. I want to look at several scriptures here from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11 verses 44 and 45. This says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm upon the earth. This is referring to their diet. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, the book of Leviticus and the, and the, the book of the law gives the prescription for right action in all of life. Okay? Understand that the Old Testament law spoke to every area of life. It spoke to dietary things. It spoke about which, thing, which, which animals were good to eat, which animals were not good to eat. It spoke in terms of health, health codes and cleanliness. It spoke in reference to, to morality, which is the absolute rights and wrongs. It had economic principles. God spoke to every aspect of life. 
And in doing that, God was, was giving a form by which if Israel would obey that form, they would manifest God's greatness and God's holiness. And we see this in the following scriptures. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. Remember, when we think of the word holy, we're thinking of those three concepts something that's worthy of worship and high esteem, something that is pure and innocent and unclean and clean. And, and the third thing, something that is full of awe and wonder. So when, when God is saying, be holy, those are the three concepts that he's trying to get across to us. And then in Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8, it says, You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and practice them I am the Lord that sanctifies you. And here we have the promise that it is God who is going to take us through the process of making us holy. And we talked about last week that the word sanctifies simply means to make holy, which means to make pure, to make something that's honorable and, and reverent, and to, some, to make something that, that is a glory of the one who created us. And so when we talk about Making something holy, we're simply making it healthy and making it, making it to be everything that God intended it to be. We talked also about wrong concepts of holiness, that we think that, you know, um, the devil would have us to think this, that either you uh, have fun or you're holy. You know, the two are mutually exclusive, and that's not true at all. If you're really going to enjoy life, if you go and walk in God's holiness, you'll enjoy life because it is sin that destroys Breaking the commandments of the Lord is, is, is the, the consequences of that are death and disharmony and disunity and, and all sorts of negative things. And we're going to look more at that next week. But when we break God's laws of holiness, we find ourselves in a devastated and destroyed condition, not in a healthy and pure and innocent condition that God intended us to live in. Let me give you a word, uh, definition of the word consecrate. That's, this is a word that's used a lot in the book of Leviticus. Consecrate simply means to set apart and to make something worthy of respect. And so when you see the word consecrate, it has totally positive connotations, has very good connotations. It's not, it's not just a religious word, but it's a word that means to make something worthy of respect or to set it apart. And who are we set apart unto? We're set apart unto the Lord, Jesus. Yeah, see, we, he, we, we, we owe him total allegiance, and we owe him our lives because he has given his life for us. Okay, and then in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. See, God has set us apart unto himself. The people that don't know God, they give themselves over to all sorts of idols, all sorts of desires, all sorts of things except God, don't they? And didn't we in times past? But when you become a Christian, the whole focus of your life becomes God, and you're setting your life apart unto him. And, and, and in doing that, he sets himself apart unto you, and, and this beautiful love relationship takes place. Then in Leviticus 10, verses 9 through 11, there was a function of the priests and they were to do this, Leviticus 10, 9 through 11. It says, do not drink strong wine, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. 
And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Now, the function of the Levitical priesthood was to teach the people the things that were clean and the things that were unclean. There are certain things that are right and wholesome for a human being. There are other things that are not right and that are destructive to a human being. And basically, if you read the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law defines what is good and what is not good. What is good and what is not good. And so if we use those as guidelines in our lives, we'll find ourselves on the blessing side of the law, whereas we obey the law, and then we're going to reap the good consequences of obeying the things that the Lord has told us to do. And in the New Testament, the, the, the teachers and the, the pastors and the elders of the New Testament are the New Testament priesthood, and, and it's the function of the New Testament priesthood to teach us as New Testament believers what things are clean and what things are, are unclean. And God shows us the things that are unclean so that we can stay away from them and, and, and experience the, the wholeness and the health that God intends for us. Israel, you read the, the, the book of Joshua and Judges, and you see the cycles of history that Israel went through. And when the priest ceased to teach the people what was clean and unclean, then Israel fell into into terrible moral reprobation, and it was, it, was, it was a terrible moral calamity in the land of Israel. And really, when Israel backslid and turned away from the law of God, they were no different than any other society in the earth. Same, you know, injustice, oppression, unequal distribution of wealth. There was, you know, problems, crime, war. All of those things happened because they did not follow the laws of God. And God, see, he wants to... He wants to bless us as his people, and he wants to raise us up as a model of how we should live. And so in the New Testament sense, Paul brings this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 16. In fact, he quotes this same scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 16. And it says this. about six second corinthians chapter six there's no 16 <laughs> all right second corinthians chapter six verses 16 through 18 and this is a quote and it says i will dwell in them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people therefore come out from their midst and be separate says the lord and do not touch what is unclean and i will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the lord almighty and so we have the privilege as that if we are willing to put aside the things that the Holy Spirit would show us to be unclean for our lives, if we will be willing to do that, then we, we get in this beautiful relationship where God is our father, we're his sons and daughters, and we get to partake of that eternal love relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always had. And in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he intended that Adam and Eve would share in that same blessed, wonderful love, love relationship. See, the greatest tragedy in the whole universe is one of us who are created in God's image to be separated from the, the creator and the, and the loving designer of all things. That is the most tragic thing for a human being to have happen. You know, we, we talk about alienation and, and, and feeling alienated. Well, the, the greatest sin 
the greatest, well, the greatest tragedy is to be alienated from the creator, from the one who created us, the one who alone has the source of life. And, and next week we're going to talk about hell and why, why, there, why there needs to be a place called hell and why it's a fair and a just place. And really it's a loving thing for God to have a place called hell. And, it's beca- and, it, and we're going to investigate this idea. It's because people refuse to have a relationship based on love and truth with God. And so the only other alternative is to live alone in isolation for, for the rest of eternity. And that's the greatest tragedy is to be separated from God. And sin separates us, doesn't it? See, violating eternal truth separates us from God. And so the whole, the, the whole thrust of the scripture is to tell us and warn us to stay away from that which will poison and destroy us and, and, and to only embrace those things which God says are clean and that will build us up and, and make us to be like him. And so Paul says that the New Testament ministry is this teaching people what is clean and what is unclean. When I first became a Christian, I did a lot of things that I don't do now because I didn't know what was clean and what was unclean. But as we grow in our walk with God and as God reveals his holiness to us, there's going to be things you do today that you won't get away with tomorrow in your relationship with God because God will start showing you that is not right for you to do that. And so he refines us and makes us more like himself. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, scripture we've been looking at it on Wednesday nights quite a bit, we find that God says, if you obey my commandments and walk in my statutes, then you will be to me a holy priesthood and a royal nation. And so if we obey the commandments of the Lord, that is the way that we will begin to walk in God's holiness. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we see from this scripture that holiness lifts us up. It lifts us into be to be the kind of people that God intended. And then finally in Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 26, verses 17 through 19. You have declared today that the Lord your God, excuse me, you have today declared the Lord your God. <laughs> Let me try it again. Today we... You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes and commandments and his ordinances and listen to his voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he promised you that you should keep all of his commandments and that he shall set you high above all the nations which he has made for praise, for fame, for honor, that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God just as he has spoken. And again, just emphasizing the fact that, that as we set ourselves apart to do God's commandments, then we are going to manifest God's greatness and his holiness. Remember this, that the commandments of the Lord come from the greatest loving heart in all the universe. God's commandments come out of the greatest loving heart in all of the universe. And he only gives them, to, he, he gives them with, the, with the motive of love that he wants us to partake of life. It's the devil's lie. And we've said this before. It's the devil's lie that, that would come to us and start slandering God's character and saying, well, God just wants to keep you from having fun. Why don't you go out and do your own thing? And that is not true. That is an absolute lie. God's heart of love lays down these guidelines for us so that we can experience what life is all about. 
Okay, now, this, this, I, I belabored these scriptures because I want you to see how important the concept of holiness is in the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament carries this over, and we find several scriptures being quoted verbatim in the New Testament. We find two of these in the book of Peter, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And it says this, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's a New Testament commandment. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's a direct quote from Leviticus 11.45. That's just a direct quote drawn out of the law. Now, when anytime scripture is repeated, that is God's way of, of double highlighting a particular truth. It's very important when the New Testament quotes directly from the Old Testament. It's very important, and that, it's like God taking a yellow highlighter and, 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 and highlighting it in bright yellow because he's saying this is very important. And so it's God's way of emphasizing. When something is repeated in the Bible, it's not just because two guys wrote the same thing, but the Bible is inspired by God, and the Holy Spirit is trying to emphasize some things to us. And so these, are, these quotes are very important. And then in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, just the next page, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that is a, a paraphrased quote of Deuteronomy 7.6. Deuteronomy 7.6. God wants us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and he wants us to be a people for his own possession. And as we see God's holiness, as we see his purposes, that will always result in our praising God. It will result in our declaring God's greatness. And then finally, in Revelation 5.10, in Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And this is a, this is a quote from Exodus 19.6. It's a direct quote from Exodus 19.6. See, God intends for us to do two things. He intends us to be a priest, and a priest offers sacrifices, and he offers prayers of, of petition and intercession. And then a king, what does a king do? A king rules, doesn't he? A king rules and reigns. And both of those callings are tied together in the life of Jesus. And he says that we are called for that very purpose. We are called to reign with Christ. We are called to be joint heirs with Jesus as kings. And we're also called to be a royal priesthood unto the Lord, by which we offer sacrifices and intercession. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have to offer Physical sacrifices, we don't have to offer animals anymore because Jesus is the sacrifice lamb. But it says in Hebrews 13, 15 that we're to offer the sacrifice of praise. And we can offer the sacrifice of devoting our lives. And as it says in Romans 12, 1, making our lives a living sacrifice unto the Lord. So we give ourselves as the sacrifice unto God. Now, in understanding this concept of holiness, God had a very graphic way of showing the ugliness of sin. And this is shown in the first few chapters of, of Leviticus. I want us to go back there. We need to understand what God was saying through the sacrifices of animals. We need to understand how he was trying to convey to us the eternal, ugly, terrible consequences of sin. 
And this is very graphically illustrated. And as we read these scriptures, I want you to, I want to, I want to try to give you a picture of what was going on. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a bird offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And here we see the principle that before a man can be accepted before God, what had to be done? Blood had to be shed, didn't he? And he couldn't bring just any old animal, but he had to bring a perfect animal. He had to bring one without defect. See, a second-rate sacrifice would not count in God's eyes. It had to be an animal that was whole and was perfect. Now, doesn't that say a lot to us about offering ourselves as a second-rate sacrifice to God? Making God one among many priorities instead of making him the supreme priority? I don't believe a half-hearted commitment to the Lord is acceptable to him, just as the, uh, a defective sacrifice was not acceptable to God. Now, here's what happens. In verse 4, it says, And the man shall lay his hand on the head of the bird offering, that, he, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And what happens is this, this man comes. He's aware that he's in need of God's forgiveness. He's aware that he is guilty before God. He brings this bull. He lays his hands upon the bull. And symbolically, the man's sin is transferred to this bull. This is what this was a, a symbol of what was going on. The man laid his hands on the head of the bull. The bull, as it were, received the sin. And then what happened to the bull? We see that in verse 5. Then he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's priest, Aaron's, Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now, I want you to picture what went on. This guy laid his hands on the bull, and then the priest took the sword and he slaughtered the bull. And the, and the blood and the, and the innards and all of the that goes on with slaughtering an animal was spilled out there and ugly in all of its ugliness and, and stench, the smell of, of, of animal flesh. And it was all laid out there. And, and, and as that man, see, as that man in his mind was seeking to come to Jehovah God, the God of Israel, to be accepted, the only way he could be accepted was that for that animal to be laid out and his blood to be shed. And that began to give him a sense of the awfulness of sin. That sin was nothing to toy with, but it was very serious to break one of God's commandments. And not only did, did, did this happen, did the blood get shed, it says in verse 6, then he shall skin the burnt offering. If you've had any, if you've done anything with animals, skinning is a real messy job. And it's, you got to take the animal apart and just, it's really, really ugly. And you're supposed to you skin the burnt offering and cut it in its pieces. And the sons of Aaron's and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces of the head and the suet over the wood, which is on, <clears throat> which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs you shall wash with water, and the priests shall offer up in smoke, uh, offer up in smoke, all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma. 
to the Lord. And so not only did the animal get sacrificed and cut up, but it was put on this fire and burnt. How many of you have smelt the, 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 the smell of burning flesh? How ugly and terrible it is. And that smoke would fill that, the, the, the place of, of the tabernacle where, where they were offering this. And that would fill that tent with that ugly smoke. And yet God said that that is a sweet-smelling savor to me. That is a sweet-smelling smelling savor. And what, what I believe God was saying was that it is sweet because now you are forgiven and you are accepted. You're forgiven and you're accepted before me. And for that reason, it was soothing and a soothing aroma before God. Because this way, God could wisely show mercy to that, to that man. Leviticus chapter 4. Not only do we have bird offerings, the, the, the book of Le- Leviticus describes a whole different, whole different, but seven different kinds of offerings. And they all were intended to do different things. And I, I don't want, we don't have time to get into all of that today. But um, in Leviticus 4, it talks about an offering for unintentional, unintentional sins, sins that are done in ignorance. And Leviticus 4 and verse 13, it says, Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty, which when, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for the sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. See, once again, here's a, here's a national sin or a, a, a corporate sin of all the people. And when they realize that they've sinned against the Lord, that they, they have to bring this bull of sacrifice. And they lay their hands on the head. The sin is transferred to the bull. And, and then they go through the same process. And you, can, you can read on that on the rest of the chapter. Leviticus chapter 5 speaks about guilt offerings. And here's a, this is a very interesting principle which has a lot of type in the New Testament. In fact, it's commanded to do in the New Testament. Leviticus chapter 5. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, and if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him, he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean, it is hidden from him. Then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly or with an oath, or, and it is hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that which he has sinned. So see, the man breaks a point of the law and he comes to the priest. And what does he do? He confesses. He speaks out loud. I did this. I broke God's commandment. And he confesses that to the priest. And he also he also shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make an atonement 
on his behalf for his sin and go through the same process of slaying the animal, of burning the sacrifice. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. That's very interesting, isn't it? I, I really don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Leviticus chapter 9. One more we'll look at. There's a lot of things, a lot of questions like that from the law I don't have sufficient answers for. And all that I can say is that's what God said to do. There's probably some reasons, and you'd have to do a lot of praying and seeking the Lord about exactly what all those things mean. Leviticus chapter 9. Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect and offer them before the Lord. Then the sons of Israel, you shall speak, saying, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both one year old without defect for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord shall appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And remember, it's God's intention that he dwells with us as his people. In the Old Testament, he dwelt as the pillar of fire by night and as the cloud by day. In the New Testament sense, God dwells with us in our lives. He dwells with us inside. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in the New Testament age, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and we have our relationship with God, we don't have to go to the temple, do we? We don't have to go down to the church in order to find God because God dwells right within us. He lives within our hearts and we experience communion and, and deep, intimate relationship because God lives right inside of us. And that's what he is intending. But God can only come and do that when there's an atonement for sin. God can only do that when there's these, these sacrifice for sin. And we go to the end of this chapter for, to verse 22. They had gone through all these sacrifices, everything that the Lord had required. Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Then fire came down, came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And see, when they did what God commanded them to do, then God came and he manifested his glory by supernaturally coming and setting the altar on fire and burning the sacrifice. And so that was the sign that God was with his people. And as we do what God commands us to do, then God is going to come and he's going to dwell with us and we're going to partake of his holiness and become holy as he is holy. Now, first, the two things that I think the sacrifices showed are this. One is that the shed blood gives rise to a hatred of sin. All of this, this shedding of blood and killing of innocent animals gives rise to a hatred of sin. And we, you could say this, that sin means the shedding of innocent blood. Sin means the shedding of innocent blood. 
And the second thing that the sacrifices show us, and it, it gives us a profound respect for God's holiness. A profound respect for God's holiness. Because who dare would enter into the tabernacle without the blood sacrifice? Who dare would come and ask to be accepted by God without the shedding of blood? And that gives us an awesomeness of God's holiness because of his purity, because his, he, just, he is so far from sin. God is so pure and so righteous. It has that quality of awesomeness to it. Now, the Old Testament, remember, is merely a, a picture of what Jesus came to do. And just as every time someone sinned or every time at, at the prescribed time, at the time given by the law when the animals were to be brought and to be sacrificed, that was only a picture of what Jesus would come and do thousands of years later when he came and gave himself as a sacrifice for all mankind. So instead of that bull being laid out there, instead of the man coming laying his head on the bull and the bull being dismembered and the blood spilled all over and then his flesh being burned on the altar, it was God's own son, Jesus himself, laying his life down and being nailed to the cross so that God could wisely forgive us and cleanse us from our unholiness and to make us holy. See, it was the price. The sacrifice ultimately was paid by God himself. And it was the price of his own son. Remember, we talked about the four principles of the atonement. Remember, we talked about the four things that the atonement, and that's this process of making man one with God. The first principle, again, was that the honor and eternal value of the law must be upheld because truth is eternally important. See, God just couldn't say, well, that's okay, because that would tear down the honor of the law. That would, that, would, that would harm God's justice. God had to consider the welfare of the people as a whole. If sin was allowed to go unchecked, sin would just would take over and there would be utter chaos in the earth. God had to show, number three, that law-breaking and evil must be clearly shown for what they really are. And that's what happened when, when, we, when we nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus, the holy and righteous and perfect human being, was the one that was nailed to the cross and his flesh was marred by the whips and the crown of thorns and the, the bruisings of the priests and the Roman soldiers. And his body was, was hung there to die and, and left there just, just in, in utter shame and utter agony, showing that evil is wrong. See, Jesus didn't deserve to die. He was the only one that didn't deserve to die. And yet he took upon himself. And as we see Jesus on the cross, him taking that suffering willingly, we get a picture. That's the ugliness of sin. That's that bull being slain and sacrificed. And then the fourth provision is that the wrongdoer must be inwardly changed to conform to truth and righteousness. Somehow God had to show us that sin was wrong and he had, to do, he had to do something to show us that we could repent from our sin and turn back to God. And the only way to do that was for Jesus to come and die in our midst, to live as one of us and to take upon himself all of our sin and all of our shame. And that's what he did. The words of Isaac Watt in the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, 
It's a very accurate illustration of how we, when we view Jesus, the righteous one dying for us, this song really portrays the kinds of things that should go on in our hearts. Isaac Watts says in the song, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death, the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, <clears throat> demands my life, my soul, my all. And we, when, when we see that, that it's Jesus that was the sacrifice lamb, it wasn't just the blood of some animal, but it was the blood of God's holy son. That is the, that's what changes us and motivates us to separate ourselves from sin and to live the way that God intends us to live. What is our response then? What is our response to God's holiness? Like the different people that we talked about last week that saw God's holiness, they, were, they fell on their face, they were awestruck, they were literally blown away by a revelation of God's purity and by his holiness. So we too must come to a face-to-face -face encounter with God that we might see our sin as he sees it. And that we might cry, as Isaiah did, unclean, unclean, when God shows us the uncleanness of our heart. And God shows us the uncleanness of our heart in order that we might hate evil as he does. And the key verse here is Proverbs 8.13. And that says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. So our response to God's holiness must be a hatred of everything that is evil, a hatred of the things that put Jesus on the cross. We must have a holy hatred for those things. The scripture gives us license to hate only one thing, and that's evil, and that's wrongdoing. Proverbs, or Psalms 33 and verse 8 says, Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8.13 defines that as hating what is evil. Hating what is evil. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's having a hatred for that which is evil. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, and the corollary to that is that if you're going to understand the true knowledge of God, if you're going to know God, you're going to have to hate sin, aren't you? You're going to have to learn to hate sin and evil as he hates it. If you do not hate sin, you will never know God. You'll never know God unless you learn to hate sin. Proverbs 15.33 says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. So as only as we hate evil can we begin to know God's wisdom.
Proverbs 23, 17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. See, live in the fear of the Lord, the Proverbs exhort us. And then Psalms 19, 14 is, 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 is really the, how it, this practically gets worked out. David prayed in this psalm. This is the last verse of Psalms 19, Psalms 19, 14. David prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And David says, Lord, let the things that I think about be pleasing to your heart. And let the words that come out of my mouth be pleasing to you. In other words, let my words be holy words, full of health, not full of poison, not full of the, the sin and the self-centeredness that poisons God and other people. But let them be filled with health and with life and love and all of the fruit of the Spirit, see. And let the things that I think about deep down in the inner recesses of my, my thoughts Let the light of God's holiness penetrate those dark and evil thoughts and let let us hate those thoughts with a holy hatred. See, God's standard for holiness means us taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means we must hate all thoughts of pride, all thoughts of jealousy, thoughts of envy, thoughts of criticism, thoughts of unbelief, thoughts of conceit, thoughts of lust, anything that is not 100% truth. We need to hate anything that is not 100% truth. And that's what, that's our response to God's holiness. See, as he shows himself to us, as he shines his light on us like he did Isaiah, then we begin to see the wretchedness and the ugliness of our thoughts. And then we say, God changed me. And then we need to start making adjustments in our thought life. And we need to think on things that are right and pure and loving and that are pleasing to God. How many of you know that we like to do the things that we enjoy? Isn't that right? We do the things that we enjoy doing. And that's why we have to have a hatred for sin so that we don't enjoy sinning. Most of us have come out, well, all of us have come out of a place of really liking our sin. So God has to transform us to hate that which is not pleasing to him. And that's something that the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in our lives. And that's something that he indeed promises that he will do. Let me give you three levels of motivation of why not to sin. There's there's three levels of motivation of why not to sin. The number one, and this is the lowest level of motivation, is this. I don't sin because it doesn't pay. I don't sin because it doesn't pay. Some people don't commit certain sins simply because it it doesn't pay anything. Like most of us don't rob banks because it's not worth the risk, you know. And there's there's nothing righteous about that because it's a selfish motive. You just don't do something because you, you know, it's not worth getting caught. So that's one level. That's one level of motivation for not singing, sinning. Although it's an it's a it's it's a selfish motivation. The second level, and this is a little higher, and this is the golden rule: do unto others whatever you would have them do unto you. So a person that lives his life by the golden rule is doing good things, but he's doing it for the wrong reason, isn't he? He's doing it for the motive of getting back, isn't he? Which is still a self-centered motive. So that's not the highest level of motivation for not sinning. 
Number three is the highest level, and that is not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit because it hurts Jesus. Not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit because it hurts Jesus. And that has to be our motivation for not sinning. We have to have a, such a respect and a love for Jesus that we, are, we don't want to grieve him. We're afraid of making his heart sad, of grieving his heart, and, and almost as it were, crucifying him again by our sin and by our willful rebellion to his laws of love. And so that's the reason for not sinning is because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Put a circle around the word, word Holy Spirit. Holy, pure and innocent, full of awe and wonder, worthy of worship and esteem and worthy of respect and reverence. That's what the Holy Spirit is worthy of. Holy Spirit is far from sin as east is from the west. So we need to have it in our motivation to the Lord. I don't want to sin because it hurts and it grieves you. Psalms 34 gives us the, what we call the school of the Holy Spirit. Psalms 34 verses 11 through 14. And David says, come you children and listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Notice the fear of the Lord is something that we learn. Who is the man who desires life and loves Length of days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Holy Spirit is the one who is called, called into our lives to teach us the fear of the Lord. And he will teach us the path that is against evil and that it is for righteousness. See, the Lord will teach us and he will walk with us and he will teach us how to keep our tongue from evil and how to keep our lips from speaking lies and how to depart from evil and to do what is right, to seek peace and pursue after it. And that's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Turn to John chapter 16. John, John 16 gives us more understanding into the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 16 Verses 7 through 15, Jesus is speaking and he says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Notice the Holy Spirit's job. His job is to bring us into the truth, isn't it? That not only is the truth of God, but that is also the truth of who you are. Just as when Isaiah saw his heart in the light of God's holiness, Isaiah was seeing the truth about Isaiah. And God wants to reveal the truth about you to you. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. And what happens? It'll set you free. The truth is very painful to, pay, to, to face. But if you'll face the truth about yourself, 
you will find that health and holiness working in your life. It's only as we, 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 we run from the truth that we stay in bondage. He goes on and says, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he shall glorify me for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the father has are mine. And therefore I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. All true revival needs these two elements. It needs needs soul convincing and soul convicting power. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring truth into a person's life and it makes him uncomfortable. That's what conviction is. Conviction is the awareness that you are wrong. Have you heard the the term that someone is under conviction? And And what that means is that the person is if the Holy Spirit is forcing him to face truth, and how many of you know that's uncomfortable? It's like getting caught in a lie. Did you tell a lie and you, mm, you know, here you are caught red-handed with your hand in the cookie jar. And it's, that's when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And God is motivated by his love when he does that. He doesn't do that to embarrass you or to put you down, but God wants to woo you into truth and reality. The scripture says that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. You know, God doesn't have to tell any lies because he always tells the truth. He doesn't have anything to hide. That's where holiness is. God dwells in unapproachable light. And if you want to go search out and investigate God, God says, fine. Search over the records. They're all right. They're all straight. God doesn't have anything to hide because he's a God of integrity. But look at our lives. We've got things we've got to hide because we have not been righteous, have we? We're afraid of somebody uncovering something from our past. And we live in this, this constant fear of being found out when we don't know Jesus. And, and like I, I mentioned the other day, the Holy Spirit is like the hound of heaven. And he keeps barking after us, and, you know, and he comes up to us and shines the spotlight on our hearts. And what do we do? We, we run back into the shadows because we don't want to come and admit that we're a sinner. So we don't want to come and say, God, you're right. I'm in need of a sacrifice. I'm in need of forgiveness. And so the, the, the non-believer spends his life running from God continually. He's got to run daily from the, from, the, from the light and the reality of God. It's all, it's written in the universe. It's written on our moral, on our moral standards and our value standards every day. It's not, the, the person is, is in God, that lives in God's universe and rejects truth has to run from it at every moment because every corner he, he turns, there is truth confronting him. And that's why the Bible calls fallen man dishonest, rebellious, lovers of, of darkness, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of truth. Man is not in sin because he's in ignorance. Man is in sin because he's in rebellion to, to a holy and a righteous God. That's the human condition. It's not that people don't know the truth. It's they don't want to know the truth. And the Holy Spirit's job is to go after them and and keep bringing them into situations where they have to confront their own inconsistency and their own own unrighteousness. And, And God says, if they will repent, then I will forgive them and I will receive them back. That's what God wants to do. That's the whole whole motivation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 3, Jesus summed this up really well. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment that light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil 
hates the light. Why do people hate God and hate Jesus? Because they're doing evil, aren't they? They're not doing what is right, and they know it. And so that is expressed in their hatred for Jesus, their hatred for God. And for everyone who comes to, excuse me, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And the man that comes to God and offers his life and says, God, I've been wrong. Forgive me. I want to live by, by truth and by righteousness. God, God can accept that man back. And that man doesn't have anything to hide anymore because he's, he's repented and turned from the darkness. And that way he can have fellowship with God who is light. See, only light and light can have fellowship. Light and darkness can't have fellowship. And in in the moral sense of relationship, relationship only has meaning when there's love and trust. Isn't isn't that right? That's where relationship has meaning. And when we sin and we break confidence and we break trust with each other and we rip one another off, then you can't have a relationship with that person. It's impossible to until they come clean and both of you get reconciled somehow based on truth. And that's that's what God wants to do with us. I want to look at this definition I put on the board. Lack of repentance in fallen man. A repentance is simply change, okay? Good, good synonym for repentance is change. The lack of repentance in fallen man comes from a lack of conviction. And a lack of conviction comes from a false concept of the eternal consequences of sin, which arises out of faulty concepts of the holiness of God. Okay, there's kind of a threefold thing working here. The first level is the holiness of God. Okay, the holiness of God comes and it exposes sin for what it is, unrighteous and wrong and against God's eternal 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 um, eternal principles. And then with sin comes a conviction that it's wrong. And when people do not have conviction, it is be, it's because they, they have covered over that working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so the, the bottom line, in order for God to win people back to himself, is to reveal his holiness to them. And you realize this, you guys, that it's out of God's mercy that he convicts us. It's out of God's mercy because, you know, if God allowed us to go our own way, we would all march off to hell and not one of us would turn back. And everyone, the whole human race would be in hell. And it's only because of God's mercy in chasing us down and, 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 and tolerating our rebellion and working with us and, and, and convincing us that we've got to choose to do what is right and live by truth. It's only God's mercy that he keeps working with us. So, you know, the scripture says he's long-suffering and patient. God, you know, we, he comes to us and what do we We slap him in the face and say, get out of here. And then we go on our way. And so he comes back and sets another situation up and he faces again. And we say, get out of here. I don't want you in my life. And God's long suffering. He just keeps taking those slaps in the faces that we give him. And finally, he just wears us down. And we think, man, what's going on? And then we finally break. And then, and God says, finally, you've given into truth and righteousness. And now I can accept you back into a relationship with me. And that's, it's the mercy of God that brings that holy conviction upon our lives. Good prayer to pray for 
your friends that need to know God, good prayer to pray is, is the prayer that God would convict them, that God would show them the ugliness of their own sin, that God would show them the end of their ways. And that's what makes people real uncomfortable. And they start go, really going through a low spot. Sometimes it takes a real low spot for us to come to Jesus, doesn't it? We really have to come to the end of our own rope and then we go help. And then God's there to catch us. But most of us won't give up. We got to get to that very end point. And then God comes in his love and he takes us back in his arms. A.W. Tozer says this. Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as natural and an expected thing. We are not disappointed that we do not find all truth in our teachers or faithfulness in our politicians or complete honesty in our merchants or full trustworthiness in our friends that we may continue to exist and make that we may continue to exist. We make laws as such are necessary to protect us from our fellow men and let it go at that. So we are so un- unaccustomed. We are, we are so accustomed to unholiness, aren't we? We live a lot in a world that's unholy and does not live by any moral, hardly any moral principle. And this is why God's holiness is such an utter shock because everything that God does is, is right and righteous and he's never deficient in any, any of his responsibilities. Now, turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is the the scripture that has the song we've been singing. It says, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Now here's the point. For But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And this is the whole reason why God disciplines us 
by his spirit is that we may share his holiness, his health, his purity, his innocence, his righteousness. See, God disciplines us as sons so that we can grow to a place of partaking of his holiness. And he goes on to say, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What he's saying there is that nobody enjoys spankings, but after the spanking, there's good fruit that's brought out in your life. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that's the process of being made holy, without which no one will see the Lord. And the only way that you're going to see Jesus is that you Allow the discipline of the Lord to work in your life to bring you to a place of total honesty and uprightness in your thought life. And remember in the the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, it says that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Church, it's the only the pure ones that are going to see God. It's only those who put sin out of their life and have this attitude of hating sin that are really going to see God and really going to know him. You can't have God and sin both. You have to make your choice. Either you're going to love God and hate sin, or you're going to love sin and hate God. And you can do that as a Christian. You can love your sin so much that you deny and hate God. And you keep him out of the recesses of your heart that he wants to invade and change. And you can resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit and resist God's wooings and ovations in your life to draw you to himself. You can keep God at arm's length. But if you do that, you're never going to see him and you're never going to know him. And you're never going to have that sweet communion that he desires us to have. First John 3, 2, first epistle of John, chapter 3 and verse 2 says, says, Beloved, we are now the children of God, and it has not appeared yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And then verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has that hope of seeing Jesus one day presently purifies his life and refines the, the selfishness and refines the bad things out of his life. You know that God is more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. God is more interested in holiness than happiness. That explains why we go through trials. God's ultimate goal of his dealings in your life is to bring holiness into your life. Holiness is a, or demands a continuous growth of transformation of character. Holiness demands continual change. It's not just a one-shot thing, but God is going to be refining holiness in your life the rest of your time on this earth. He's continually shining the searchlight and bringing and refining things in our lives that need to be shined out. Proverbs 4.18 says this, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. 
And it's like what, what God, God is saying is that our walk with him is like walking towards the sun. The closer we get to the sun, the brighter the light gets. And the brighter the light gets, the more we begin to see the ugly little corners in our heart. And then we got to clean them out. And then we walk another step closer to the light and we go, oh boy, where'd that come from? And we see that God's got to do some more refining on us. But you know, the closer you get to God, the more you see his purposes and the more clearly you see God and the, and the better you know him and the better fellowship that you're able to have with him. Holiness is to the spirit what beauty is to the body. Holiness is to the spirit what beauty is to the body. Holiness is to the spirit what beauty is to the body. All of us appreciate beauty and the beauty of the human body that God has given us. And because I'm sure the world is, because we live in a fallen world, you know, some of us aren't what we should have been had we not fallen. And, you know, all of us are beautiful in our own ways, you know, granted to that. But all of us are going to get old and get wrinkles and, you know, get Dunlop's disease. You know, that's when your tummy Dunlop's over your belt. You know, all of us are going to decay because we live in a fallen world. But, you know, there's one thing that's not going to decay, and that's your spirit. That's, who, that's the real you. And, and you, see, what, when you die, your spirit, the immaterial part of you goes into eternity. And the way you are when you die is the way you are when you go to meet Jesus, you know. And if you are walking the life of holiness... When you get to be with the Lord, that's when the beauty is really going to shine out. Is when you've taken the time to allow the Holy Spirit to refine your lives. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, this is speaking to women, but I believe the principle applies to all people. God says that God is, or the scripture says that God is very pleased with the gentle and the quiet spirit. It's precious in the eyes of God. And that's, it's speaking with reference to a woman, but I believe that the principle is true for both men and women. A, pre- a quiet spirit, a holy spirit, is beautiful and very precious to God. Okay, now the practical application. We'll finish up here. Number one thing we need to do is pray for a revelation of God's holiness. That was the application to last week. But we need to be saying, God, show me your holiness. Show me your holiness. Show me how holy you are. Remember, when you pray that prayer, buckle your seatbelts because you might be surprised in what you get, what kind of answer you get. Just like Moses and the disciples when they went on the Mount of Transfiguration, when John saw Jesus in the Revelation, it was a very devastating thing. So be prepared for some shocking news when you pray that prayer. But if you mean business with God, you'll pray that prayer. And then secondly, pray for a revelation of your own heart. Pray for a revelation of your own heart. That's a scary prayer to pray too, because that can be very devastating when you see the real you. But it's very necessary to see who you really are, because that way you can change and repent and be the person God wants you to be. Number three, let God's word be your standard. Let God's word be your standard. Don't let what people think, don't let what you think is right, don't let the crowd, but let the scripture dictate your standard. And that way you'll stay right before God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And this, this, this passage in Hebrews is a direct reference to, that, to the priest that would hack that animal apart. And when he would cut off the leg of that bull, that sword would penetrate to the very marrow of the bone. It would just sever that leg right off. And everything inside that bull would be exposed. And that's what the word of God does to our soul. The scripture gets into our hearts and boy, it just comes down and it divides that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous. The Lord, when we do something wrong, that sword comes and just splits that open and it's there for every, well, at least for you to see. And you see, wow, that's what I did. The word of God needs to be our standard and we need to ask God to convict us by his word. And then number three or number four, when God convicts us of something, we need to respond and we need to change our evil ways. The fourth thing that we do is we need to change when God puts his finger on something and saying, yes, Lord, I want to live by truth. I want to live by truth. Here's a little maxim that I picked up. Truth always hurts because it requires a change in us. Truth always hurts because it requires a change in us. To know the truth can be a very painful thing because it requires that we change, doesn't it? It requires that we change. Now, what do we do when God convicts us of something, when we begin to sense, when we begin to see that there's something wrong in our lives? The first thing you do, A, is repent. That means to turn around. It means to change. It means to purpose in your heart not to do that again. Proverbs 28.13 says, When we, he who covers his transgressions shall not prosper, but he who forsakes and repents of them shall find mercy. He who repents and forsakes them. So that's the first thing we do is we, we forsake it. B, the second thing we do is confess. Just like that man would come in and lay his hands on the bull and then confess his sin, so we confess our sins. And 1 John 1, 9, this, again, this is just a direct inference from the Old Testament. John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess, we admit that it's wrong, and we be open with God about it, and then God comes and he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then part C, the third thing we need to do is make restitution as God directs. Make restitution as God directs. And that means that if you've done something wrong to someone, then you need to go and get that right. If you've stolen somebody's car, you need to go and give them their car back, plus some damages. So you need to get your life straightened out. And it's a very humbling thing to go and confess sin to brothers and sisters, to people that you've wronged. But that is the price to be a holy man or a holy woman of God. We've got to get rid of sin. and We've got to hate evil. And one of the best ways is going and confessing our sins to our brothers and sisters. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
See, healing comes when we pray for each other and when we confess our sins to one another. Hallelujah. And the final scripture is in 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and that word means the process of being made holy, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. God says there's two kinds of vessels in his house. One is just for everyday use, and then there's some vessels that are specially prepared for for special occasions. Like, you know, when you get the china out for Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, you get out all the things that you don't use every day, and those have special purpose, see? They have special meaning. And God says that if you will sanctify your life, if you'll purify your life, the reward is that you will be a prepared vessel and that God will be able to use you for many good works. You see, instead of just being an everyday run-of-the-mill vessel, you're going to be a special vessel that God is going to be able to do special things through you because you're a prepared vessel. See, God cannot use a vessel that's full of garbage. God cannot use a man or a woman that's filled with unrighteous thoughts, that's filled with evil intents in his heart. It's only after it's refined and, 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 and purged and cleaned up that God can use us and fill us with his glory. How many of you like to drink from a dirty water glass? God does not want to use dirty vessels. Same way. That doesn't mean you're not going to go to heaven, but it does mean fulfilling your eternal purpose. For Jesus' sake, be serious about sin in your life and say, God, I want to be a prepared vessel no matter what it costs. And if I have to stand up in front of Maranatha every week and confess my sin, I will, because I want to be a holy man of God. I want to learn to hate sin as you hate it, that I might be righteous in your eyes. One concluding remark from A.W. Tozer. We must, like Moses, cover ourselves with faith and humility while we steal a quick look at God, whom no man can see and live. The broken and the contrite heart God will not despise. We must hide our unholiness in his wounds, in the wounds of Christ, as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. And above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in his son Jesus while he disciplines us and chastens us and purges us that we may be partakers of his holiness. By faith and obedience, by constant meditation on the holiness of God, by loving righteousness and hating iniquity, and by a growing acquaintance with the spirit of holiness, we can acclimate ourselves to the fellowship of the saints on earth and prepare ourselves for eternal companionship with God and the saints above. Thus, as they say, when humble believers meet, we will have a heaven to go to and a heaven to be in. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.